This morning, I'm going to follow up a little bit from last week, a different section of Scripture. But last week, we looked at um, the demoniac, the Gadarene, where Jesus came and, and delivered him. And last week, you know, my, my title of my message was, you know, the day I met Jesus and transformation that can take place in the life of a person when they accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. He is a God of transformation. He transforms and changes anybody and everybody that's willing, that's open. You know, the Scripture tells us continually, He's continually seeking us, drawing us, wooing us. And when we submit to Him, everything can change. And the enemy will attack. And I, I, I... at the end of the story about the demoniac, he, he asked Jesus, he says, can I follow you? He was pleading with him, it says, can I follow you? You've cast all these demons out of me. You can only imagine the change in his life. You remember the story, you know, he was naked, demon-possessed, chains couldn't hold him, shackles couldn't hold him. He was a mess, and he went running to Jesus. And in a moment, he was set free. God sent the demons into the swine. The people told him to leave, so he left. But when the the man asked him, can I go with you? He said, no. He says, go and tell what God has done in your life, transforming you. And I really believe that was one of the primary take-homes I wanted from that message was, you know, God has done amazing things in everyone's life. If you have accepted Jesus Christ, there's been a transformation. It may only be beginning but it's going to be completed according to his time frame as we cooperate. We do have a part to play in this whole thing, receiving, responding to his, to the Holy Spirit. But he has a plan for us, and we're to go and tell. This morning, the title of my message is Loving the Lost. And when I think of the lost, you know, oftentimes the picture I would want to put up there is something like that, or maybe homeless people, or maybe drug addicts on the street. And there are many of them that are truly lost. Loving the lost. I thought about calling it loving the unlovable or loving the broken. They need love. But the reality is, if you look at the second slide, the lost don't always look that bad. Matter of fact, most of the time, they don't look that bad. There are lost all around us, in our communities, in our families, in the workplace, Here in this room right now, there are probably those that are still lost. We learn so well to to clean up pretty good and put on the mask, do whatever it takes to make people think that we're in a good place. But people are hurting. People are going through terrible circumstances, trials and tests all the time. And if they don't know Jesus Christ, there is an emptiness there that nothing else can fill. And one of the things that God, and I hope we see this as we look through the the message this morning, one of the things that God gives us so that we can give it to others to demonstrate who he is, is the ability to love. The ability to love in a way that you cannot love without Jesus Christ in your heart. An ability to love that's impossible if we do not have the Holy Spirit living in us, loving like Jesus loved. And this is what I want to look at this morning. I want to start with a really familiar scripture to most of us that grew up any type of church. And it simply is John 3.16. And I added a few words to what's going to be on the screen in just a minute. The words in red are mine. They weren't inspired, or at least not by God. Well, maybe they were, but they're not inerrant. For God so loved the world. The word love there is a, a form of agape, a 
Agape love. We'll talk about that in just a minute. An agape love, an unconditional love. Agape love is a love that has nothing to do with the recipient of that love. Nothing to do with us. When it says God so loved the world, he agaped the world, not because we were that good, not because we were that desirable, not because he had a need for any of us. He agaped the world. He just loved it unconditionally with no regard to who you and I were. That's agape love. And it says he agape love. And one of the things that agape love causes to happen is an action. Agape love requires a response. For God agape the world that he sat back in his throne and just watched us self-destruct. He couldn't do that. His nature wouldn't allow it. He is love. God is love. He is agape love. It required him to take action. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should never perish but have eternal life. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Agape love, unconditional love, unmerited love that requires an action comes always with risk. Always. Because I am laying myself out there to be rejected. I am doing it, I am loving in a way that has no regard for me. Only for the other person. You know, we may not think of it that way often, but God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. He sent Jesus to earth to take on flesh, to live on this earth as a human being while he was all God, all man, walk to the cross, be rocked, mocked, ridiculed, spit upon, tortured, beaten, nailed to a cross, and died. And yet, he knew full well many would reject that love. And many still do reject that love. But that's the kind of love that the Lord has for us. And it's interesting, until Jesus came, until God visited earth in the form of his son Jesus, and until he demonstrated that kind of love, the word agape was not hardly part of the Greek language. There are four different, at least four different words for love that are translated love in our scriptures. There's at least four. One is phileo love. It's a familial love. It's loving our family members. There is eros love. It's a romantic love, almost a sensuous love. It's the love that you'll see that word translated love in the Song of Solomon, that R-rated book of the Bible. And there is also another form of love that we don't see in the Bible, the word storge, but it's actually a love and it's affection between family members. Phileo, brotherly love amongst friends, family members, romantic love. And then all of a sudden, when Jesus came on the earth, he demonstrated a love beyond any of those. It was a concept that the the pagan mind at that time, the Jewish mind at that time, didn't understand. They didn't get it. They couldn't hardly imagine a loving the unlovely. It was incomprehensible to them. It was all about appearance, prestige, what can I gain from loving that person? There was a loving God reaching down from heaven towards sinful man was a concept that they could not comprehend. And quite frankly, it's a concept that none of the false religions can comprehend. 
Most false religions and most sinners or unbelievers or those that are maybe even relatively familiar with religion, as we call it, what's the goal? Work our way towards God. Do better. Do good. Effort and futility. It will get you no closer to salvation. The agape love is unconditional. It's unearned. It's not dependent upon us. It is a love that can only be received. And that's how Jesus loved us. So when Jesus came on the scene, you can imagine just even the understanding of a culture. It was hard to comprehend this kind of love. And the amazing thing is, Jesus gifts that to us when the Holy Spirit indwells us and says, love like I do. We can't do it in the flesh. An unbeliever, no matter how passionate their love may be, you can pretty well guarantee that there's a selfishness aspect to it. I am so passionately in love with this person. Meaning what? I want them. I want to be with them. They're supposed to come and satisfy me emotionally, physically, whatever. I need them. It's all selfish. Agape. I just love them. I just love them. Has nothing to do with them. Doesn't matter how unlovable they are. Doesn't matter how broken they are. Doesn't matter how dirty they are, how smelly they are. It doesn't matter. I just love them. And it's a love that causes there to be an action. And there's always the possibility of rejection. In 1 John 3.16, this scripture reads this way. This is how we know that what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Jesus had to explain this kind of love. He had to demonstrate it as he walked out his life, but he had to explain it in his teaching because it was a concept they didn't get. I mean, I love you a lot, but lay down my life? Are you kidding me? That's not even there. For the worthless of the worthless? Not possible. 1 John 3.18, Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. It is so easy to, I love you, brother. I love you, sister. What do you need? I'll pray for you. Sweet. And you have all that they need at your hands, at your fingertips, but you don't do it. That's not agape love. Agape love requires us to take action. Words, Jesus is saying, are cheap. It requires action and truth. 1 John 4, verses 19 through 21, it says, We love because he first loved us. When we say that, what we're really acknowledging is, I can't love that way unless he did first love me. So I can agape you because he first agaped me. That's what makes it possible. If anyone says, I love God, I agape God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Must. And I want to just tweak maybe your thought process on that. Must love your brother. It's not like, you better or else. It's like, if you love God, you can't help it. If that love of God is in you, you shouldn't be able to not love like he loved. You must love God. I can't not do that. Jesus had to do a lot of teaching on this. You know, there was a time he had, you probably remember or maybe remember when he sent out the 70 
It says they sent out the 70. What he did is he sent out 70 of his disciples and he said, hey, go do the stuff. Go out there and heal the sick. Cast out demons in my name. Spread the good news of the gospel. Go do the stuff. And they did. They went out and did the stuff and they came back and they were pumped. He says, even the demons flee. You know, and, and Jesus says, you know, wait, no, wait, 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 wait. Don't get so excited about all that. And he goes into a little bit of teaching about what they should be excited about. And then in amongst the crowd, there evidently is a lawyer. And a lawyer in that day was a lawyer who knew the law, understood the law. This is in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. I'm not going to go through it all. It's a parable that we've heard, I think, if we went to church when we were kids, we've heard it many, many times. We call it the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus' point in that is what agape love looks like. So the lawyer stood up, and he and Jesus have this little conversation, and Jesus does what he so often did, ask a question, he asks you one right back. You want to get an answer? you got to answer his first. This lawyer stands up, and he says, "What Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do? And really, his motive was not to discover what to do to to inherit eternal life. He was trying to trap Jesus, as they so often were. Jesus just simply says, what's the law say? And the lawyer answers, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, good job. You answered rightly. Do this and live. Well, the lawyer, probably being pretty sharp, pretty quick, came back right away. We said, well, but yeah, I get it, but with, with, who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? I am supposed to agape my neighbor. I'm supposed to love them unconditionally. God, if they're a good neighbor, maybe. And he's looking for an out is what he's looking for. And he's still looking to trap Jesus. He said, who's my neighbor? And that's when Jesus goes into what we call the parable of the Good Samaritan. And briefly, again, you can look into Luke chapter 10 if you're not familiar with it. But briefly, it's this. There was a man, and he was probably a Jewish man. There was a man who was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And it's a road through the mountains, and it was a dangerous road because it was covered with thieves and robbers. You didn't travel that road alone if you were wise. And it says there was a man who was traveling the road and he was attacked by robbers and thieves. It says they stole his clothing. Here we are, a naked guy again. They stole his clothing and robbed him of his money and his goods and they beat him and left him along the side of the road as if he was dead. And then here comes a priest, a Jewish priest. And it says the Jewish priest is walking around the side of the road and he sees the body laying over there and he moves over to the other side of the road and walks right by. And then it says, here comes a scribe, one who writes and studies the law. And the same thing happens. He sees the body laying along the side of the road, this naked man beaten to the pulp, and he walks to the other side and walks right by. I can almost imagine, you know, "Ah, I love him, but somebody else, he's going to die anyway. What have I got to offer him? I I can't carry him. And then it says, and here comes a Samaritan. 
And one of the reasons I believe that the guy that had been beaten was a Jewish person, it makes the point of it being a Samaritan that much greater. Here comes a Samaritan, and the Samaritans and the Jews despised each other. And the Samaritan comes along the road, and he, he sees the man lying along the side of the road. And he goes over, it says, and he goes over and he bandages him. He anoints the wounds with a mixture of wine and oil. He puts him on his own animal. He lifts him up, puts him on his own beast, his own animal. And he takes him to the inn in Jericho, and he first takes care of him. And then he goes to the innkeeper and says, you know, I've got to leave. I'm going to give you some money. Please take care of this man, and if it costs you more than I gave you, when I come back, I'll pay you the extra money. And then Jesus looks at the lawyer and says, which one of these three proved to be the neighbor? And the lawyer says, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus simply says, go and do the same. The Samaritan, the despised one. The one who came and he didn't look on this person and start to judge him. He didn't look at him with a critical eye. All he saw was someone who had a need. And the agape love in a Samaritan. He uses a Samaritan to demonstrate that kind of unconditional love that's not deserved. He didn't earn it. He just gave it anyway. You know, the early church became well-known for this type of love when it first got established with the disciples. We can read about how they shared and everything was considered. Anybody had a need, you gave it to them. You met the need. They agape loved, and it drew people. The churches grew. The word went forth, and the churches grew. Agape love. And sadly, over the years, this agape love has kind of disappeared. When Paul wrote to the Corinthian church at the very end of chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, he mentions, he says, there is a more excellent way. And if you're familiar with chapter 12, what what Paul was writing about in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians was all the gifts that he's given to the church to build up and edify the church. Great things, great gifts given to the church to build up and edify the church. But before he finishes the chapter, in 12, verse 31, he says, But eagerly desire the greater gifts. And now I will show you the most excellent way. Now I'm going to show you the most excellent way. I'm going to show you the most excellent way of the greater gift. And if you know anything about 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it's often just simply referred to as the love chapter. It's the one you'll hear so often at weddings. And the significance of it is mostly missed. It sounds nice. It's sweet. And at that romantic moment, it just fits. The reality is it's it's a letter of instruction about what agape love should look like. Love that does not contain selfishness. Love that is not given for me to gain anything. It's just a love that I have to present, have to exhibit, because that's the love that's in me, because I love God, and he loves me. 
1 Corinthians 13. I'm going to read it, though most of you know it. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Words are cheap. They don't mean anything if there's not love. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but I have not love, I am only that resounding gong or clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and if I can fathom all the mysteries and all knowledge and if I have faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Wouldn't that be amazing to have the gift of prophecy? Wouldn't it be amazing to have the wisdom to understand all things? Wouldn't it be amazing to have a faith that can move mountains? And he says, but if you don't love like this, it's nothing. It's worthless. It doesn't count for anything. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Nothing. Not that any of those things are bad things, but if there's not love, as the underlying foundation, it's worthless. Then he goes on and describes what love is and what love isn't. And notice every single thing he mentions requires an active choice by the one who is going to demonstrate this love. It's a love that requires action. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Every, Every step of that requires a conscious choice, an action. The agape love. I love you, therefore I am compelled to action. And then he finishes with saying, this kind of love never fails. Never fails. And as I said, however, over the years, the early church was recognized for it. Over the years, church has kind of lost that, that flavor. Church, especially today and especially in our culture, has kind of gotten really comfortable Kind of, kind of safe, kind of clean and tidy. Kind of sometimes nothing more than a social club. It shouldn't be that way. Agape is not a sentiment or a feeling all by itself. It's never dormant. It's never powerless. It always requires action. And it's only dynamic when it's taking action. Being a church, being a church, being the church that loves the lost, the broken, the damaged, the unlovable is the kind of church that Jesus intended to establish on the earth. Church is not supposed to be a social club. Church is not supposed to be necessarily a safe, comfortable place. The least of the least, whatever we would think that to be. The most undesirable of the undesirables, whatever that might be in your mind. The most broken, the most damaged, should be able to walk into one of God's churches and feel loved. Unconditional love without an expectation. A love that is not dependent on who they are. It's not dependent on what they've done, what they've earned, what their prestige is. It's not dependent on any of that junk. 
They walk in. We love them unconditionally because God loves us unconditionally. We didn't deserve it. They may or may not. It doesn't matter. We are called to love them. You know, <clears throat> little, little self-confession here. You know, if you wrote a list of all your friends, how many of them would be non-Christians? Now, some of you would say almost all of them because you're a relatively new Christian. And I'd say, thank goodness we've got those people. Because guess who goes out and invites other people? The newly saved more than anybody else. And I, I think of that scripture where Jesus says to the Pharisee, he who has been forgiven much, loves much, is thankful for much. We can tend to forget. You know, we, we, anybody here who doesn't like non-Christians, you don't have to raise your hand. You know, there are sometimes, <laughs> I confess, there's sometimes, there are some jerk that is so evil, I can hardly wait for them to experience hell. Am I, am I the only one that's ever thought that way? Dang. So much for job security. Seriously, there are times when that thought enters my mind. What a jerk. What a loser. They deserve everything God's going to give them someday. I don't even like them, much less agape love them. A lot of the church prefers to keep the messy, broken people away. They're a lot of work. They cause a lot of problems. They take up a lot of time. Let's keep them out there wherever they're at. And let's just talk about how much we love them. We'll even pray for them. God, save that wretched soul. Go save him, Mike. Go, go lead him to the Lord. Go give him your coat. Give him a place to live. Give him a bedroom in your basement. Do whatever it takes so that they know they're loved by somebody. Like I said, Lord, go save him. The agape love. You know, after we become a Christian, I know what happened in my own life. Um, all of a sudden, the friends that I associated with, I'm distanced from. And, you know, a lot of times it doesn't happen intentionally. I get that. And a lot of times it's not even because of what we do or us pulling back. is they pull back. I get that too. But we need to make sure that we know some people and have some friends that are needing the Lord. If we're not out there being salt in the world, there's no salt in the world. We're to go and be light. They're all in the darkness. We need to be able to go out and put ourselves in a place that we have these kinds of friends, these have these kinds of acquaintances, and are developing relationships with them so that we do have an opportunity and credibility to share with them. We're missing the mandate of Jesus if we're not doing that. Sometimes we needed to be reminded. We were, and I could almost use the word are, but I don't want to get into theology here, too deep. But we were all broken. Equally broken. Sometimes we get somebody, I meet with somebody, and I go, boy, they're really broken. The reality is, they're no more really broken than any of us were broken. Once you're broken, you're broken. The manifestation of that brokenness can look different. 
based on environment, based on your experiences, based on the choices you or I have made or they have made, based on the consequences of those choices, we say, whoa, they're really broken. No, they're just as broken as you and I were broken. We were all broken once. And until we reach that place of accepting Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we're still broken. And even after we do, there's still manifestations of what was broken. We need to, to desire broken people for friends. We need to desire the lost for friends so that we can be the church that Jesus died for. Jesus, when he came, actually had to define his ministry. And he did it in a couple of verses. First in Luke 4, 18. The Spirit of the Lord, and he got in, kind of got in trouble with this. He, he was quoting from the book Isaiah. His ministry was just going to start. Basically, he had just been taken out in the wilderness and tempted by Satan. And he goes to a little synagogue meeting, and as was the tradition, they gave the scrolls to someone. It happened to be him. He stood up and read, and it just happened to be from Isaiah 61. And he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and to release the oppressed. He was defining his ministry. That's who he came for, the broken. He went on in 19, verse 10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. To seek, he looks for, he went for those that were lost so that he could share truth, love them, and save them. John 20, verse 21, again Jesus said, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. He defined his ministry so they would clearly understand it and says, Now that you know what I came to do, now you go do it. Seek and save the lost. Freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, those that are spiritually blind. Jesus got himself in trouble. He was often criticized for hanging around with those people. Many times, you could probably look in a very short time and find at least three or four different places in the Scripture where he's sitting down with, it says, tax collectors and sinners and the Pharisees and the religious were saying, what's he doing? If he knew, what's he doing eating with these lowlifes? One of the classic examples is in uh, Luke chapter 7, verse 36 through 39. He's at the house of a Pharisee again, a religious person. And here comes this woman in. And she goes right to Jesus and and kneels over Jesus and says, she's weeping so hard at the feet of Jesus that her tears are washing his feet. She has no towel, so she's drying his feet with her hair. And she's continually kissing his feet over and over and over again. And then she takes perfume and anoints his feet. And the Pharisee says, if this guy was really a prophet, he'd know what kind of sinner this woman is. No love. No agape. Jesus was demonstrating, and he used this woman as a demonstration of love. He had to teach them. And he had to take and risk their ridicule 
for hanging out with sinners. He came to seek and save the lost, and that's our mandate as believers in the church. Now, before we get carried away, just in closing, I want to remind us or ask this question. <clears throat> what way was Jesus a friend to sinners? Because I know a lot of people who have used that mentality as an excuse to participate in a whole lot of sinful things. If I'm going to reach them, I've got to go be with them. Well, that's true, but you don't need to do what they're doing. When Jesus was a friend of sinners, did he indiscriminately go hang out with a bunch of drunkards or the prostitutes or the tax collectors? Did he just randomly, where are they hanging out? We see none of that in the scriptures. He hung out with them. Why did he hang out with them? How did it come about? They came to him. Why? Because he was speaking truth. His life was a model of love, selflessness. And they were drawn to him. And as they were drawn to him, he was more than happy to spend time with them. But he didn't go out of his way and to avoid where they were at either. You know, remember he went and found one of, the, one of the disciples, Matthew. Come and follow me. Went to his house and had, had supper with him and a bunch of other tax collectors. Took a lot of garbage for that. What are you doing hanging out with these guys? He would make a point of putting himself in a place where he could interact with sinners without participating, becoming like them. He wasn't and didn't have an easygoing live-and-live mentality of his messiahship. We can, we can get there. Well, that's okay. Live and let live. Jesus loves you anyway. Well, that's true. But he hates what they're doing. Go and sin no more. Jesus didn't wink at sin. He didn't ignore sin. He didn't participate in it in any way, just even, you know, hey, golly, it's a little, little fun. I'm, I'm staying on the side, but I'm just going to watch and enjoy and laugh with them. He didn't do any of that. But he was always ready to love the unlovable, the broken, the sinner. He loved them enough to receive any of them, all of them, as he went where they were at. And that's what we're called to do. This isn't my line, but a line that I really like is this. A church without broken people is a broken church. If we do not have broken people in here, first of all, we're fooling ourselves. But second, if we don't have broken people in in here and we aren't receiving them, if we aren't out there inviting them to come. I mean, think about this. I know for some of us in here, I should say some of you in this case, for some of you in here, you've been Christians, you were raised in a Christian home, you never messed up, you never got too out of line, you've never been looking too broken. But for most of us, there was a time where we were looking for something and we found it in Jesus and that need was met. And there's a whole world out there around us that's looking for the same thing, only they don't know what it is. And we pull back and don't go share it with them. It's not complicated. Love people. Tell them about you, your life, your testimony. As Jesus told the demoniac, just go back to your home, your family. Go back to your area and tell them what Jesus did to you, what he's done for you. There are broken people everywhere all around us, and they need to meet Jesus, and he's going to use you and I to reveal himself through our lives, through our love, agape love, and through sharing truth with them. They need to know. 
that there's someone that cares and loves them. I think we all know this, but there is a world out there that feels unloved. We're unworthy, worthless, and no one cares. Suicide rates are astronomical. The enemy is out there trying to convince them that they are those things, worthless, no goods, shame, guilt, condemnation. The demonstration of that agape love, that unconditional love from you and me will draw people to Christ. And that's what we're called to do. It takes action. And every time we take action, we need to realize we could get rejected. There's a risk. Sacrificial love innately has a risk involved with it. And I just want to close with this encouragement. We have a special service coming next Saturday night. A healing service, a worship service. And when you say healing to people, emotional, spiritual, just come and pray for whatever. whatever. It's a pretty benign event. I mean, we might raise our hands. We might dance and clap and hopefully they'll get over it. But it's an opportunity to step out and invite people. They need what the Lord has to offer. Take action. They'll probably say no two, three, four times. But if they know that you love them and you're asking them with no expectations, it gives us an opportunity to demonstrate the love of Christ. And there's something about when people get in the presence of God's people worshiping and the Holy Spirit's presence is manifesting that just draws them, softens hearts, prepares them to receive the gift of salvation. Encourage you, consider that this week, not just for that service, but continually. How can you demonstrate that kind of love? Let's close in prayer. Lord, I pray that we would continually be reminded in our spirit by your spirit of how you demonstrated such love for us through Jesus, your son. That we would be reminded how broken we were and how lost we were until we received the gift of salvation through Jesus. Lord, I pray that you are preparing hearts, even now in, in people that we will be meeting individually or corporately in the coming days and weeks. Father God, that you could use us and your love flowing through us to draw them to you. Lord, I pray that that spirit of fear would not be able to stop us from acting out in a way that you would desire. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning, and I'm pretty sure there is, Lord, I pray that this morning you would be softening their heart, that they would receive from you the gift of salvation through your son Jesus that's so freely given, that you would give them the grace to receive that gift, surrender their life to you, receive forgiveness for all their sins, that they might know the love of Christ in a supernatural way today. And I pray that this week, Lord, that you would guide us, that we would be demonstrating that same kind of love to everybody that we would meet. Bring some of the unlovables, the broken, across our paths, that we might have those opportunities to share the love of Christ.
So I pray now, Lord, that you would go before us, watch over us, protect us, keep us safe. Lord, give us ears to hear what your Holy Spirit is speaking to us and that you'd be glorified in all of it. In Jesus' name, amen.